Hello everyone, welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I don't know if you're like me, but when um, I was going through the COVID experience, which we're still sort of in, I felt like the world was sort of simultaneously constricting and expanding. And what I what I mean by that is that, of course, we all had our COVID bubbles where we were in some ways locked away in our home. And so the world constricted around us for us to be safe. But at the same time, because of things like Zoom and, and Microsoft Teams and, and other uh, other programs like that, I was able to reach out and reconnect with people from high school and from college that I hadn't talked to for years. And even when I was teaching my classes, I found that it was a lot easier to bring uh, experts into my class in ways that I would have not thought about doing when we were entirely face-to-face. So what we're going to be talking about in today's program is a resource that you can use to continue the good part of that experience where we bring the world to us and expand our possibilities. My guest is Dr. Monique Chisholm. She's the Undersecretary of Education for the Smithsonian Institution, and in that role, she's responsible for defining the institution's educational priorities and also facilitating outreach to learners of all ages. Monique, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Scott. What a pleasure to join you. Absolutely. Um, You know, I think everybody uh, understands the scope and the scale of the Smithsonian. Most of us, though, experiences it when we uh, go on a a trip to D.C. and walk in the doors of the various museums as tourists. Your role um, with the Smithsonian is different because of the outreach mission. Can you sort of talk about what your priorities are as the undersecretary and, and what the role is that you're trying to accomplish in helping educators and learners? Sure. Um, I'd love to, actually. I, I actually joined the Smithsonian about nine months ago. And, you know, as a person who's spent most of my career in formal education spaces, I always thought about the Smithsonian, just like you said, as, you know, taking a class for a field trip or, you know, using it as an enrichment opportunity. But it wasn't until I joined the Smithsonian that I really started to understand the full potential uh, for teachers, for educators, for families in, in, in enhancing a student's learning experience. So um, we have over 21 museums. We have six science centers. We even have um, an astrophysical center in, in Massachusetts and a marine biology center in Florida. And so I think the first thing that I didn't realize was just the number of um, buildings, facilities, museums, units that we have. But what we are committed to doing is making sure that students, not just in the DC area or the Maryland, Virginia, DC area, have an opportunity to experience the Smithsonian. But every student across the nation has an opportunity to experience the rich content and information that the Smithsonian has to offer. So our charge is really to really think about how do we bring the Smithsonian to every classroom in the nation. And um, it's it's been a fun challenge, and uh, we're, we're making some headway there. So one of the things that I, I think is so important about the Smithsonian is that because of the, the massive collection, you have access to so many different types of original materials and original documentation that you know, that, that isn't available in other ways. What are some examples of the types of um, original source material that a teacher might be able to use in their classroom uh, through reaching out to you? 
I love that question. And I'm going to unpack that just a little bit about why I think it's important because, you know, when you use primary documents, it changes the learning experience for for students in such a, a critical way because, you know, textbooks are great. They really are. But it becomes somebody else's kind of version or lens of an experience. But when you're able to use primary source documents, what the student actually does is become an investigator. They become a questioner. They can start to compare and contrast the experiences of different individuals. And so we don't actually own this. The Library of Congress has this, but um, it's right across the street. But they have a draft version of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about giving a student perhaps the assignment of looking at a near final draft of the Declaration of Independence and then asking them to look at the final final version of the Declaration of Independence. What they can start to see is how the founding um, fathers were thinking about and grappling with really complex issues. And then what you can do is then start to fold in other narratives like um, poems from Phyllis Wheatley or the biography from Frederick Douglass. Um, and start to really think about from a first-person narrative perspective, what was the context? What was the um, experiences? What were the things that individuals were grappling with? And how did that shape and form form the ideas of our nation? I really loved how you just described um, how a teacher and a student, a group of students, could bring in different primary source materials and have them be read alongside one another. So the, the great example that you gave of the Declaration of Independence alongside Frederick Douglass's uh, memoir, it seems like that opens up an ability for a teacher and a student to have a deeper conversation about different narratives that comes together into their own understanding. Is that is that a good way of describing it? Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's what the Smithsonian is committed to. So You know, we really believe that it's important to understand the past in order to understand our present and our future, and that our future is actually a shared future, and that if we're going to progress as a nation, if we're going to advance, that it's important for us to think about those interconnections, those shared stories, those stories that have sometimes been invisible or not heard Mm -hmm. um, or part of the conversation. And so that's really our charge and our commitment. I, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable situation given your role, but obviously right now um, in in our country, uh, in our culture, there there is there is a type of dialogue going on that tries to erase parts of history. That that's my editorial statement, not yours. How do you think that greater access to primary materials um, might either counteract or at least provide a different viewpoint in that dialogue? Yeah, I'm happy to, to talk about that because I think it's really important. Um, you know, I, I think it's around January 2021, we started to see states pass legislation that would exclude the teaching of um, race or racism or conversations about gender or sexism or even gender identity. And they were doing it under this false umbrella of critical race theory. And in a lot of ways, what you're seeing is that um, there's a, a narrative that is happening that, that assumes that anything about uh, equity, about 
culturally responsive education, um, understanding racism, understanding sexism is in some way teaching critical race theory, which is just not not true, not mm-hmm. accurate, um, not correct. And so to go directly to your question, what I love about primary source documents is that it gives the, the student the opportunity to be a critical thinker. So rather than, you know, teachers are trusted sources of information also, but rather than just taking the word of their teacher or taking the word of a textbook, they have an opportunity to examine the materials themselves and actually start to ask themselves, you know, is this an accurate representation of what I understand and know? And um, also, is this um, representing the things that the, the textbook is also amplifying? And so, you know, just as another example, if we were to use primary source materials to think about World War II, you might have an opportunity to think about uh, Anne Frank and use Anne Frank's diary. You might also have an opportunity to utilize Dorothea Lang and her pictures to understand the American experience. And then you also might have an opportunity to think about the the Japanese internment camps and, and diaries and letters from individuals there and really start to understand different perspectives about what it meant uh, for the United States to, to be involved in World War II in ways that you might not get from a t- traditional textbook. One of the things that... Um at various points in my academic career that I've been interested in is different forms of historic narratives. And so when we read uh, historic um, fiction books, uh, nonfiction books, um, you know, we are reading the statements from an author that can frame it in a certain way. Um, It can be a romantic story. It can be a tragic story or whatever, but it's being framed. And it seems to me that when you're dealing with primary source materials, that framing is no longer, you know, front and center because because literally you as the student and you as as the teacher in the classroom are forming that narrative um, as it's unfolding as you look at the primary sources. The question that I'm trying to get at is that for students of many ages, even up through higher education, they're not used to doing that. They're used to having things framed for them in the media, uh, in, in books that they read, et cetera. It seems like as we're using the primary sources, we also have to think about how to teach learners how to come up with their own narratives and why that's so important. What are your thoughts on that? I agree completely. I think um, what it actually does is it helps to generate kind of this opportunity for students to generate a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to, to test that hypothesis through the inquiry and examination of these different resources. And so um, I absolutely think that's, that's exactly right. And that's the skill that we want students to have, right? Is mm-hmm. that critical thinking skill, that ability to analyze. And even if you're reading this historical novel, I mean, one of the things that you might start to ask yourself is like, how many interviews did the author do? What was their research experience? What did they do in the field to mm-hmm. come to the kind of these depictions and understandings? I think it helps us become a better consumer of information. So, you know, just for example, I love, 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 I'm probably a nerd in this way, watching C-SPAN, right? <laughs> 
Um, I, I like to watch the congressional hearings. Um, I like to understand the debate. Um, but then I don't want to watch the news commentator afterward kind of tell mm -hmm. me what just happened. I really just want to go and engage in it myself and then form my own opinions. Um, and then when I start to look at what the commentary is saying, I can then decide if I agree, if I disagree. You know, sometimes my 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 own ideas land more progressive. Sometimes they land more conservative. But I don't have to kind of rely on somebody else to help form and shape my opinion about something. So I imagine, I, I know that you've mentioned that you, you came on the job um, a few, uh, several months back. I have to imagine that going to work every day is a blast because you get to discover so many new things through the resources of the Smithsonian. Have as you've started to think about the use of primary materials, and I'm, and I'm sure you've you, you've poked your nose into some of those, have you found anything that surprised you and reshaped the way that you've thought about um, your own understanding of historic events? It happens every day. I mean, like working at the Smithsonian is like uncovering a treasure chest every single day. Hmm. Um, and I, I feel like I get to experience that. Um, but I think there's like maybe two examples that I'll share. Um, first, I'm I'm really proud of the work that the Smithsonian is doing around uh, women and science, and really thinking about how to tell the story of um, the contributions of women in the fields of of, of different disciplines. And so, we recently um, in March hosted an exhibit called "If Then She Can." Hmm. And it was um, 120 life-size statues of female scientists around the nation, representing, you know, age diversity, race diversity, ability diversity, diversity in disciplines. And it was so exciting to just like have these statues in our gardens and watch the young children interact with the statues, watch the parents interact with the statues and see how excited everyone um, was getting about knowing and understanding these women and these scientists more. And we actually had an event where some of the ambassadors were there with their statues. And hmm. so um, it's just a, an opportunity that we had to celebrate the contributions of women in science. Another profound moment that I had was we had the opportunity to host for a short period of time the placard that was um, designated for the place where Emmett Till's body mm -hmm. was disposed of. And the placard itself is very informational, you know, but what you see is that the placard is riddled with bullet holes. Hmm. And for me, that was just a, a very emotional, profound experience because it, you know, even after his death, there was still such um, hate and emotion that was, you know, conjured that, you know, to see it riddled with these, these bullet holes was just, uh, has, has, has had a profound impact on me. So um, it's just like two examples of the way mm -hmm. in which objects uh, can shape and form, inspire, um, and change your perspective, I think, in different ways. So talk me through, if, if I'm a teacher um, in a classroom here in Athens, and um, I have an idea that, that I want to explore, 
how do I interact with the Smithsonian to try to um, have that come alive in my classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of different ways. We offer um, we offer some professional learning that's online web-based that anyone can sign up for. Um, and so if you, if you go to Smithsonian uh, website and go to the education section, you'll see different opportunities to sign up for, you know, professional learning from Air and Space Museum or from uh, our new Women's History Museum or from the Latino, uh, the new Latino History Museum that we'll have. And so mm-hmm. each museum has offerings of professional learning for teachers. But we also work to customize um, experiences. So we have great, we have over 300 educators at the Smithsonian. And our job is to help to curate information that helps to meet your needs. And so we have uh, teachers who reach out to us and say, I have this unit and I, I really want students to be able to understand comparison and contrast. And I want them to be able to use different artworks to do that. And we can help to curate an experience and and really help to support the teacher. Um, And then we're also engaged in more long-term committed projects. Like we we just started working with the State Department of Education in the Midwest, and we're going to co-create five learning modules with them that focus on their multicultural standards, Hmm. um, social studies, and target early learners. And so we'll be working with them over the summer to, de- to co-create um, these modules and um, roll those out statewide over the next couple of months. So there's there's all different types of entry points. And I, I would say the first thing to do is just reach out and we'll, we'll help direct you in the right direction. I mean, that just sounds so amazing that, um, you know, not only do I have the ability to go on the website and, and look at things and learn from the materials you've created, but the fact that I can actually work with an educator at the Smithsonian. It's just so exciting. I mean, I'm sure that that's a surprise to many teachers that they would have that opportunity, but wow, what a great resource that would be. Yeah, and we love working with teachers. And so it's exciting for us too, because we learn so much from them also. As you think about, um, you know, this project from the Smithsonian and, and the outreach moving forward, obviously technology is going to play a, a pretty critical role in facilitating that, um, what are some of the uh, options that you have seen used to help literally bring the Smithsonian's resources to life in a classroom? I mean, I, I'm sure it's a lot of Zoom-type interactions, but what's the best practice that you have now, and, and where do you see that going in the future? So what we've tried to do is provide some um, multimedia types of resources. So what we've learned from teachers is that Um, instructional resources really need to be short. Mm -hmm. So like a a 10, 15 minute um, activity video that they can get in and use and supplement what they're doing. Um, But really kind of those, those unit long um, development or creation of resources are are not as helpful. So we've we've done a couple of things. We have um, like a, a series called STEM in 30 where we're connecting different STEM discipline content areas um, with our objects and um, our educators in a a 30-minute video. We also have created a number of interactives. So we have a number of games. Mm -hmm. We have some virtual reality um, 
sessions that are really cool. Um, and then we also have created kind of those traditional lesson plans that um, help educators identify resources in their classrooms, um, maybe from their home that they can bring in and create some hands-on activities. Uh, so we're trying to, to tap into different modes um, through, you know, video, interactives, uh, webinars, hands-on activity. So we're trying to, to meet all of those different learning styles and needs. It sounds like, you know, the, the content creation is a huge part of your portfolio. Is that correct? Yes. Our museums uh, take the lead on that and they do a wonderful job. But yes, content creation is definitely a significant portion of what we do. How long has this program been, um, you know, working with the Smithsonian in terms of like how long has the Smithsonian been doing this type of outreach? You know, our our web-based digital presence um, has been there for a while, but it, it was really ramped up during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So when when we no longer we, we had to close our doors for a couple of months there and right. you know it, it really kind of helped us helped us to pivot and think about how can we bring these resources to individuals across the nation and and it did some fabulous things for us you know honestly um, it helped us to think about how do we have a museum without walls. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite activities was this this group from DC. Um, they worked with our art lab and they created a virtual museum. Like the students created it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they created a virtual museum and they then created the, the work that would be exhibited in this museum. So artwork, music, um, and also dance, poetry. Uh, but through that experience, they learned how to code. They learned how to develop, a, you know, a virtual platform and interactive space. They learned how to project manage. They learned how to collaborate and do teamwork with one another. So it was so much more than just the creation of an artwork. It was uh, important life skills. And so um, in many ways, we've had to be creative and it's, it's helped us and push our own comfort levels and partner in, in new and different ways that we, we might not have um, had we not had that that push. That's a really great example of, you know, project-based learning, and I'm sure that uh, the students grew tremendously as a result of that experience. It also sounds to me like it opens up possibilities for um, classes to, I mean, you know, the thing, the thing in digital space right now is, is people sort of recreating um using con using content to recreate their own virtual spaces and so the the virtual museum that you just described that curated uh, different art forms you could easily imagine um, a class tackling that project where they they focus not just on art but they integrate uh, science concepts they integrate uh, different forms of art. They integrate history um, to have a museum that is thematically focused on a particular topic but comes at it from different disciplinary perspectives. I think that would be really exciting. Yes, absolutely. And the, the theme for this virtual museum was actually they had two things that they could focus on, transportation hmm. in the city and the environment. And so the project was called Rep My City, you know, represent my city. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. And so they had to think about um, DC from a, a transportation perspective and then also an environmental perspective mm -hmm. through their um, artistic uh, you know, 
displays. So absolutely. I, I'm sure that in your current role and, and your previous roles with the Department of Education, you spent a lot of time sort of thinking about how to do big projects like this. Uh, from a teacher's perspective, obviously, if they were doing the self-learning aspects of the program that you have, they're, they're going to be working on that probably during the summer as they prep for the next academic year. It seems like, though, if they want to do something a bit more customized uh, based upon something they want to do in their classroom, it probably takes a little bit more lead time. Do you, do you have suggestions on if a teacher thinks, okay, I've got an idea, but it's going to take more than just going through the the um, the self-learning portal, what's a time frame that they should think about in, in order to make that feasible? That's a great question. Um, so I think sooner better than <laughs> as soon as possible I'm sure but <laughs> yeah I think it's um it's a question about how much do they want to how much do they want to do so if it's you know I just need um a couple of extra resources to help to amplify what I'm already doing you know that could be like within a week you know mm -hmm. one to two days within a week but if it's it's really like I want to rethink what I've been doing and turn it more into a project-based learning experience, then, you know, that would probably be good to take a little more time. Mm -hmm. um, so we could make sure it's connected to the learning standards um, that we're thinking about the objectives with you and then really um, building on the lessons learned from other projects. And so, you know, maybe like two to three weeks, you know, but it, I think it's just customized and based on how much um, exploration the teacher wants to do. I, I know you, you've already mentioned a couple of examples of um, curated uh, topical areas that you all have put together. What are some things that you see on the horizon that teachers might think about as, you know, potentially coming online and available in the next uh, year or so? So we are actually um, launching our two new museums, our, the Women's History Museum mm -hmm. and the, the Museum of um, the Latino American History Museum. And so we're going to start to, before we'll have the physical spaces, because the buildings will take a little while to be built, uh, we'll have a, a, a virtual presence. And so there will be a lot of information about the contributions of women um, in science, in government, um, in sports, in business, uh, so many different ways in which uh, we can incorporate and think about the contributions that women have had to the nation. Mm -hmm. um, and same for our Latino History Museum. Uh, so those are two spaces. But then we're also doing some major kind of um, rethinking at our, our Air and Space Museum. And so they'll reopen in the fall uh, with some new exhibits and some new experiences. And so um, there's always great connections with, you know, history, science, culture um, that are always coming, coming online. So looking into the future, um, do you have object, I, I, do you have a sense of being able to, to describe um, how many teachers or schools are working with the Smithsonian right now? And, and how would you like to grow that? That's a good question. Um, I think as, as everyone knows, uh, evaluation and our metrics are so important. Mm -hmm. And um, we do have some, um, I, I can't remember them right off the top of my head, but we do have uh, metrics that we collect. 
it primarily represents the the individuals who connect with us in the museums. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Secretary Bunch, and I don't know if anybody knows Secretary Bunch or has met him, but if you have not, you should. He's a, a wonderful individual and a great leader. He has given us the charge to, to reach every classroom in the nation. So um, that's the metric that we're holding ourselves to. So uh, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to work hard at doing that and doing that in a meaningful way that brings value to teachers. Well, it's a, it's a challenging task, but one that um, as you accomplish it, um, everyone will be better off for. I mean, the, I, I, just, uh, I, I just, you know, it's really exciting to think about if, if a teacher, you know, across, anywhere in the United States is able to access the resources available through the Smithsonian. I mean, there's just so much great potential for learning and engagement that you're right, it's just different than having a textbook open on your desk. So I, I wish you the best of luck in accomplishing your objective of reaching every classroom. And I hope that, you know, teachers that are listening to this um, will, will stop and think about how they might be able to use the Smithsonian as a resource to enrich their students' lives. Well, thank you. And and Scott, it's been such a wonderful conversation. And, and thank you for all the work that you do also, um, which is so important. Well, it's our pleasure. I mean, that's really what we try to do in this podcast is to make sure that people understand resources that are available to them. And, and I and it, it was great making this connection because, um, you know, as I said before, the Smithsonian is always something that I've revered. And, and every time I go to D.C., I try to at least spend a little bit of time in one of the museums because you just learn something new. But, you know, as I think about the courses that I teach uh, and, and the ways that I could draw upon um, original source material with college students, Um, It's really exciting to think about ways that that can become a part of a learning experience for them. So um, it's my pleasure to have you on. Um, And I want to say that, you know, if there's any, if if over the course of, you know, your team working with teachers to integrate this, if there are specific stories of how it's being used, we would love to have the teachers and maybe people from your staff that worked with them to come back on and to really narrate how this can be used effectively in a classroom. That's wonderful. We'll definitely take you up on that. And let me know the next time you're in DC. I'd love to give you a behind the scenes tour of um, you know any of our exhibits that you'd like to, to see. I will definitely do that. Uh, okay. Well, Monique, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. My guest today is Dr. Monique Chisholm. She's the Undersecretary of Education for the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, If you want to find out more information about the program that she's leading, we will have a web link in in the text accompanying this podcast so that you can um, get on the Smithsonian website and learn how to uh, take advantage of the tremendous materials that they have. Thank you for listening to WOUB's Teaching Matters. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Hope you have a great day.